Well, good morning. All right, it's good to, I think it would have taken a blizzard to keep us away three weeks in a row. Um, and so uh, thank you for uh, gathering together this morning, uh, even with a, a bit of ice out there. Um, we're delighted to be able to be here. Well, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. As we continue our study in Colossians, we're going to begin chapter 2 today. And uh, we'll find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1 as we think about what a, what a thriving church looks like from this uh, wonderful letter that Paul wrote some time ago. Colossians 2 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word and that we get to consider it this morning, that we get to hear from you. We believe this to be the word of God. We believe you speak to us through it by the power of your spirit. And so we pray that you would do so today and that we would be receptive to all that you would want us to hear from you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the summer of 1893 when 21 million people visited Chicago at the famous World's Fair. Part of the World's Fair there in Chicago was what was called the Parliament of Religion, in which the leaders of the world's religion gathered there in Chicago in order to dialogue in the effort of creating a united world religion. Of course, that's a goal that all biblically-minded Christians would reject. And even as we just, Dave read for us from Joshua 23, that's specifically forbidding such activity. And yet, uh, they gathered here together to create this, seek to create this world religion. Um, and, and this was uh, there in the very hometown of Dwight Moody, who called Chicago his very own. And so Moody, the great evangelist, responded to the parliament of religion by renting a circus tent in which he would preach every night. And thousands of people would gather to hear him preach. Of course, the question for Moody was, what should he preach? I mean, should he, in light of what was going on in that city, take on the world's religion? I mean, should he let Buddhism have it? Right? Should he expose Hinduism? Should he cut them down? Well, it's not what Moody did. In fact, Moody focused exclusively on the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men and women would turn to him. And he did. And, and they did. In fact, the Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered one of the greatest evangelistic works in the 19th century. Thousands of people receiving Christ by faith. Well, in some sense, Colossae is kind of like 1893 Chicago. Many faiths are represented in this town 
to uh, which this church resides and to which Paul writes. Uh, in fact, uh, one, one pastor uh, described Colossae as the golden corral of religion in the first century. Right? A vast array of diverse temples and superstitions. There was a God for everything in Colossae. There was a God for health, a, a God for fertility, a God for prosperity, a God for protection. There was even a temple to the sewer goddess, Closina. So I kind of wonder what the worship service looks like for the sewer goddess. And so there was a great danger, of course, with all these faiths in Colossae that's presented to this church. I wonder if, in some sense, this is a danger to which Paul alludes here in verse 4 of chapter 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's aware of the temptations that are presented to this young church by these deceptive faiths and even as we'll see later in chapter 2, by people actually entering into the church. And so, uh, Paul, aware of this, you'll, what we'll find in, Coloss in the book of Colossians is that, just like Dwight Moody, rather than striking them down one at a time, Paul instead is going to choose to proclaim them Christ. And we've seen, of course, he does so in amazing detail in chapter 1. It seems in Paul's mind, as it is often in our mind, the best way to spot a, spot a counterfeit is to become very familiar with the genuine article. And so Paul uh, labors to exalt Jesus and to teach us Jesus. And we see some of this, I think, here in chapter 2. Uh, this is still an autobiographical section of the book of Colossians. It's been some time since we met, as you know. But if you look back in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul begins to describe his ministries, re referring to the gospel. And the end of verse 23, he says, of which, that is, of the gospel, I, Paul, became a minister. And there, from verse 23 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul's describing his own ministry. And he begins, uh, begins to do so really in general terms. And in the context, Paul says, I, I'm, I'm a minister of the gospel, and I'm going to suffer for the gospel, and I want the gospel to be made known through my ministry. And so he speaks in, in generalities. But once we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, and, and all the way through verse 5, our text this morning, we'll see that he becomes very specific. And, he's, and he begins to lay out his hopes that he has for this particular church, the hopes that he wants for the church in Colossae. And I think in doing so, uh, I've been very helped by this passage. I think it gives us great direction for us as a church. It is a picture, as I titled this sermon, of a thriving church. In fact, we see a, a thriving church entails four components. We'll see, first of all, the struggle we give. Secondly, the goals we pursue. Third, the dangers we face. And lastly, we'll consider the delight that we share. And so uh, let's begin with the struggles that we give, just as Paul does here in verse 1. You note what he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul says, listen church, you need to know of my struggles for you. That word struggle is an interesting word. It's the word uh, uh, agonizomai, which is kind of fun to say. Agonizomai. Uh, it's where we get the English word agony. It's the same word used to describe Jesus' experience in Gethsemane, that Jesus was in agony. And now Paul says, listen, I want you to know of my agony, my struggle, my sacrifice for your good. I'm fighting for your welfare. And, and in doing so, I think Paul demonstrates his great love that he has for this church. He does not keep them at arm's length at all. And so don't get in your mind Paul's this cold ivory tower theologian. He is a pastor with passionate love for God's people. In fact, note verse 5. He says, 
and beautiful language. For though I am absent in the body, I am, uh, yet I am with you in spirit. Some of you know what that's like, don't you? Far from a loved one, um, and yet you're mentally with them. You're thinking about them all the time. Your, your heart goes out to them. Paul says, I'm in Rome. I'm imprisoned here, but my heart is with you in Colossae, which is somewhat astonishing because as you saw there in verse 1, and we see this in other passages in the book of Colossians, he's never met them. He's never been to Colossae. He may never ever go to Colossae. He doesn't know who these individuals are, and yet he still agonizes on their behalf. Which, of course, raises the question, if Paul's locked away in prison in Rome, 100 miles away, how does he, how does he struggle for anyone? Right? If, if you're in prison, you're not nearby, how can you struggle for them? And I think what Paul is, is simply means here in verse 1 is he's referring to the burden that he has in his heart for them. He would write in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, speaking of the daily pressure of the concern I have for all the churches. And so this is a burden that Paul carries for the churches, I think that burden is chiefly expressed in prayer. I think perhaps the labor, the struggle which Paul is giving for them is a, a struggle of, of, of prayer. I'm, I'm wrestling in prayer with you. Some of you, uh, again, know what this is like. You're familiar with that labor in prayer. A loved one is in trouble. I'm sure you've had that experience. Someone is buffeted by circumstances or ensnared in sin. And you pray for them. You think about them throughout the day, and when you do, you, you, you pray. There's little short prayers. You're constantly thinking. You wake up in the middle of the night, don't you? And the first thing in your mind is this person or that person. And, and even in your half-slumbering mind with your head upon your pillow, what do you do there in bed? You, you, you offer up some plea on their behalf. You, you intercede for them. In fact, Paul encourages us to be Christians like that. He says, in the book of Romans, in chapter 15, join me in my struggle, same word, agony to my, in prayer, by praying. Paul says, I'm unable to serve you. I'm unable to be there and protect you. I cannot teach you in person, but I pray for you. I struggle in prayer for you. In fact, he wasn't alone. We've already been introduced to their pastor, a man named Epaphras, but we see him again back in chapter 4. Turn over there for a moment. Just You'll be interested to know that the love that their pastor has for them, and he joins Paul in this struggle. In verse 12 of chapter 4, we read, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Now note this, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And so Paul's struggling in prayer. Epaphras has been struggling in prayer on their behalf. It reminds me of the, the great Baptist preacher, William Carey, who before uh, headed to India, before becoming the father of modern missions, uh, this shoemaker, before he was a pastor, created a leather globe so that he can be in prayer for a world that was unknown to him. It seems that Paul has this heart, I'm struggling for you. I wonder, do you know that struggle in prayer for your church? Would you characterize uh, your prayer life for Hamilton Baptist Church as a something that you give yourself to. You, of course, know that we send out a prayer guide every Wednesday to help you know how to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know our directory is what we have a directory now that's 30 pages long, intentionally so, one page for each day of the month so that we might be in prayer for one another. Some of you tell me that you pray for me. 
you pray for my family. I, I hear all the time that, that some, some members of the church pray for me every day. I, I don't think that is a small thing. I think that is a glorious and powerful thing. I think it's something that we see uh, presented to us by Paul. We should give ourselves to this ministry for one another even praying for those we've never met, just as Paul is doing. Our missionary partners, we send out their, their updates in that weekly email. What a wonderful opportunity to become aware of what our partners are doing around this, this world in order that we might pray for them. Pray for people that we'll never see. People that we might never meet. This is what Paul is doing here. This is what I think the church ought to do. Not just bless our own people, but bless those whom we might never come into contact. It's one of the reasons why we started an intern program here at this church and brought Cody on as, a, as an intern. Of course, that's become something far greater than we ever imagined, and we praise God for it. But the idea was to train up a young future pastor to bless a church that we'll never be part of, bless some other church. Why we have a summer intern every year at this church in order that we might help train someone else that they might bless another church. Why we have the Mark Cochran uh, Memorial Scholarship Fund in order that we might help uh, pay for vocational education in the ministry so that these individuals will be educated in the ministry and go and bless another church that we might never know. Some of you, even uh, Dave, pray for Paul and, and uh, uh, the church in Ghana. Many of you will never go there, and yet you're giving to that in order that we might support works for people that we would never know. I think Paul demonstrates this for us, that we want to be a blessing to not just to Hamilton Baptist Church, but to the in, entire church of God as God leads us. And Paul says, I want you to know this. I find it interesting there in verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great the struggle. So he doesn't simply pray for them. He says, I want you to know that I'm praying for them. And I think it is because he wants them to know that he loves them. He loves them. And I, I, think, I think that's important for the church to know, in particular from their leaders, that they're those who God has appointed in authority in the church, that they love the church. I've been so helped by the story that Pastor Charles War uh, told when he explained that his ministry was helped beyond words. When uh, Mr. Arthur Caird came and looked in to see me, he said. He writes of it saying, he was always perfectly groomed, as everyone said of him, just as nice as he looked. After some conversation, he ran his hand over his silver hair and turned his kindly eyes to me and delivered himself of some encouraging and heartwarming words about my first year of ministry. Then he paused. Yes, everything in the garden's lovely, or nearly lovely, he said. I waited, now a little anxious. Arthur Caird rose and came over to me and laid a fatherly hand on my shoulder. My boy, he said. The garden's still waiting for the blossoming of one flower without which the garden of no pasture can be perfect. Another pause. I know we're not everything we ought to be. And no doubt we need a lot of scolding. But we'd all be a great deal better than we are if you would only try sometimes, instead of lecturing us, to show us that you love us. Charles War records, those words were a turning point in my ministry. I do pray that that would be true in this church, that you would know of your pastor's love for you, of your elders' love for you, that we would not be simply those who teach and lead, but we would be those who lovingly serve. 
I think this is why Paul is saying, I want you to know this. I want you to know how much I love you. In fact, it's not just a church in Colossae that Paul loves. I find it interesting. Look again in verse 1. He speaks of another church, doesn't he? He says, and for I want you to know how great the struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Uh, we know of the church at Laodicea from the letter that Jesus wrote them in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's, it's interesting to know that Paul also wrote a, a letter to the church at Laodicea, but has been lost to us in history, I trust, by God's providence. If you look back in Colossians chapter 4, you see Paul refers to the letter that he wrote to this other church. He says there in verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, uh, that is the letter that we're reading right now, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So take the letter that we call Colossians and send that on to Laodiceans so they can read that and read on and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So I wrote the church at Laodicea letter, you read their letter, and they'll read your letter. And so it seems like these two churches seem to be in somewhat of a relationship with one another. In fact, that's not the only uh, church in which Paul refers to. Uh, look it up in verse 13 of chapter uh, 4. He says, for I bear him witness. that he." This is, this is referring to Epaphras, the pastor and church planner of the the church at Colossae, so for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So here's another church. So you got one in Laodicea, one in Colossae, one in Hierapolis. You got one more here. Uh, where is it? In verse 15, I believe it is. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea. Again, it refers to them. And to Nympha and the church in her house. And so now, now we have a house church in which he is referring to. And so you have... Uh, all these churches here in the Lycus Valley in western Turkey seem to have a brotherhood among them. There seems to be a, a relationship amongst these churches. In fact, I looked it up. I found it interesting that uh, Colossae and Laodicea are 12 miles apart, which, by the way, is the exact distance from Hamilton to Lovettsville, which I find particularly interesting. And so you have these churches who are, who are uh, working together. I think we learned two truths from this. I think one, one truth that we learn is that what we see in Paul, it's good to pray, not just for our church, but for other churches, which of course is something we do as a church in our pastoral prayer every Sunday. We make sure we're not only praying for us, but we're praying for a, another gospel work. But it, I think the other lesson that we learn is that there is a partnership. We see in the Bible, it, immediately when the church begins to f uh, be formed, there's a partnership between churches. I find that important to affirm as a Baptist, because as a Baptist, one of the ba three Baptist distinctives is that we believe in the autonomy of the local church. That is, there is no hierarchy above the church. There's no, there's no session, there's no bishop, there's no pope. Uh, we don't answer to anyone. Each church, we believe the Bible clearly teaches, is autonomous, sometimes called independent. We believe in the independence of the local church, but sometimes we take that doctrine too far. And we equate independence with isolation. So the independence of the local church does not mean the isolation of the local church. That a thriving church, I believe, should be in partnership with other like-minded churches. Just as Hamilton Baptist Church is. About three years ago, in fact, we joined a partnership of churches called the Pillar Network. A church a partnership of a little over a national partnership of over 100 uh, Baptist churches who are like us, who are elder-led, believe in expository preaching, are committed to church planning, share our DNA. We have formed a regional assembly. There are seven of those churches here 
in our region. And we meet together once a month, the pastors do and the leadership do, for pastoral accountability and counsel. And we struggle on, uh, in prayer for one another. But we also do so in the goals of planting churches. And I, 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 want, I want you to be aware of this, that though we seek to plant Lovett's Hill Baptist Church in eight months from now, and Hamilton Baptist Church is certainly taking the lead on that, we do so in partnership with Lovett's Hill Baptist Church and Winchester Baptist Church and Sterling Park Baptist Church and Grace Church and in Gainesville. And that these churches also are providing resources and are encouraging their people to come and join this church planting work. And in fact, Cody, who will be pastoring Lovett's Hill Baptist Church uh, last year spent six consecutive weeks preaching at Winchester Baptist Church and studying in that church and learning uh, the complexities of pastoring a smaller church, a, a, a church plant. And so I, I'm excited that we are in partnership with other churches, and I think we see a model of it here in the book of Colossians. I think it's helpful for us to not be in isolation as we struggle together for these beautiful goals listed here in verse 2. And so consider, secondly, the goals that we pursue, that Paul will lay them out in verses 2 and verse 3. There seem to be three goals in which Paul is struggling for. He begins here uh, in, in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged. And so he wants them to be encouraged. When the Bible talks about being encouraged, it doesn't simply mean to put your arm around someone and, and, and pat them on the shoulder. It means to put courage in them, To that in goes courage, to encourage and Paul will do this, not by pretending that life is easy and troubles won't come. He does so by pointing them to Christ and the promises that Christ has made for them. I love the story of David in the midst of one of his crises. So in regard to Saul, he's weary and he's wavering. And the Bible says, Jonathan rose and put David's hand, uh, strengthened David's hand in God. What a beautiful picture. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. He took David's hand and put it back on the promises of God. And so should we as a church. We should be talking about what God is doing in our life and reminding one another of the promises God has made. I want you to be encouraged in your hearts, Paul says. Secondly, uh, the goals that we pursue is I want you to be united in love. As we read on in verse 2, we read these wonderful words, be knit together in love. And so you notice that what Paul seems to understand is that the church's unity is found in their mutual love for one another. And some, I think, may mistaken, uh, mistakenly believe that it's our theology that unites us. And certainly, in some sense, it does. Uh, theology, of course, is paramount. And we're going to see that very clearly in verse 4 in just a moment. But without mutual love for one another, theology can become the club in which we beat each other with. Right? We must be united in love. And in fact, Paul will emphasize this in chapter 3 and verse 14, in which he says... And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so if we are to be a thriving church, we are to be a community of people characterized by love and care for one another. And so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you be a source, a uniting force of love here in this church. By the way, it's why God gave us deacons. I wonder if you're aware of this. You remember in Acts 6, we find in the, in the New Testament church that's just starting out, the first division in the church, the first disunity in the church is found in Acts 6. The solution to the disunity is deacons and deaconesses. God raises these people up in order to be a uniting force 
in the church by serving one another sacrificially out of an outpouring of love. One pastor calls deacons the shock absorbers in the church. They absorb in the disunity and don't spread it out. And God has given us people like this in this church that help us to be united. And we do need help because I think unity is often hard. Perhaps you're familiar with that famous C.S. Lewis quote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Right? I wonder if the same thing can be said for unity. Right? Unity is a lovely idea until we have something to divide over. Where are we going to find the strength then as a church to remain united? Well, we're told right here, we do so in our love for one another. We apply the gospel to our life and we begin to think if Christ could love somebody like me, certainly I can love somebody like you. That we might be knit together in love, that we might be encouraged in heart. And thirdly, the third goal that we see is that we might be complete in our understanding. And it's here that Paul um, just amazes me. I find this extraordinary. As we read on in verse 2, he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, right? And so, I don't know, do you want a full understanding of Christ? You should want that, because look what he says in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is hidden treasure, and I think hidden not in the sense that it's locked away in secret, but hidden in the sense that it's all stored up in him. All the treasure of wisdom and all the treasure of knowledge are found in Jesus. And, and, and of course it's hidden, I think, in, in this sense, it's hidden from those who don't know Jesus. Right? If you don't know Jesus, you, you can't have the, the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And, and certainly this is uh, true in my life. Prior, prior to my conversion to Christ, I, I, I wanted nothing to do with him. And, and the, the every once in a while when we would go to church, uh, uh, we, you know, Christmas and Easter, or when I was visiting my grandparents, and we would all off to uh, United Methodist Church in Fallbrook, we would go. And man, I hated that. I wanted nothing of that. I love visiting my grandparents, but man, I hope we wouldn't be there on Sunday because I did not want to go to church. And something happened to me in as, a, as a teenager, and I was given eyes to see and a heart to believe, and I saw Christ to be the treasure that he is. All the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. Have you discovered that? In fact, I'm not alone as, you know, it was John Bunyan that 17th century author of Pilgrim's Progress, who I spoke to you a number of weeks ago, who was sent to prison for preaching the gospel as a Baptist in England, spent 12 years there. Well, prior to becoming a Baptist preacher, he was a tinker. He fixed pots, and he would say of himself a wicked blasphemer, wanted nothing to do with Christ, until one day he eavesdropped on four women as he was fixing a pot, and they were washing clothes, their clothes, Bunyan will write in his autobiography, their talk was about the work of God in their hearts, how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and what promises they had been refreshed with and comforted. Methought they spake as if joy did make them speak. 
They spake with such pleasantness of scripture. In all they said, it was as if they had found a new world. End quote. And it is shortly thereafter, based upon eavesdropping upon these women, that Bunyan was given eyes to see the treasure that is found in Christ. He discovered those riches as well. In fact, I love the language. You see the overflowing language that Paul uses here in verses 2 and verse 3. All the riches, the full assurance of understanding and knowledge. All the treasure of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ. I tell you, God cannot be known truly apart from Jesus. I hope you believe that. God cannot be known apart from Jesus. And he can't be known any better than in knowing Jesus. All the treasure of knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. Paul would declare this truth in Philippians 3 when he looks at all that he had done and all that he has accomplished and all that he has learned and, and said it's all worthless. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's full of riches and glory. You remember that uh, old show, I don't think it's on air anymore, The Extreme Home Makeover, right? You remember, did you guys watch that show? Where they knock on your door and they say, hello, uh, we're sending your whole family to Disney World, right, for a week, and, uh, and we're going to redo your house while you're gone. And when they say redo, what, what ends up happening more times than not, they tear it down to the foundation, they build a brand new house, and, you know, and it's like custom made for everyone, and like the... The boy has like a slide from his bedroom into the swimming pool and all sorts of ridiculous things like that. I mean, could you imagine getting something like that? You get this, this dream vacation, right? Or at least a dream vacation for your children. Okay, off to Disneyland you go, okay, which is I think like $20,000 these days. And then you come back and you got this brand new house that is beyond any, any uh, imagination of your means. There's no way that you could uh, a- a- access a house like that. And it's all just given to you free. I mean, here it is. Well, just think of something glorious like that in, in light of these verses that we're, we're seeing here. Just all the riches are found in Jesus. All the treasure is found in Christ. Paul's saying you can, you can have immeasurable riches in Jesus. You say, how, how can I access them? And this is what I find extraordinary. Look, there's one word one two-letter word, in fact, I think is so important. Look, look again in verse 2. Let's read this very carefully. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Here's the word. To reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of Christ. See that word to? In, in order that, right? So what Paul is saying, you've got to put these two ideas together. You United in love... So that you might reach a full understanding of who Jesus is. You catch that? That when, when, we, when we are living in loving community with one another, the result is not simply affection for each other. The result is an abounding understanding of the treasure that is found in Christ. I, I think that is a glorious idea. That when we are united in love, it allows us to access all the riches of full assurance and understanding found in Jesus. Not united in love and a complete understanding of Christ. United in love in order to have 
all access to all the riches of a full understanding of Christ. In other words, Christian, listen. Knowing Jesus, understanding Jesus, delighting in Jesus is a community project. Your knowledge of Christ will only grow in the soil of a meaningful church community. Let me put that in the negative. You cannot pursue a growing depth of understanding of Christ in isolation or in rejection of God's people, in rejection of a loving fellowship. You say, well, how does this work? Well, you, you, I think it works in so many ways. I mean, when I, when I got married, I immediately, because of that relationship, grew in my understanding of Christ's love for me as the bridegroom of the church. When I became a father, and you know this, you immediately begin to understand the gospel in, in greater detail, in understanding the father's love for it. When I adopted my daughter, I, I, I even grew even farther in understanding of my position in, in, in God's family. And, and, and we see this here, what Paul is saying, in, our, in the church, listen, when the body of Christ serves us and ministers to us, we begin to understand who Christ is. In times of trial, you say, how is God going to help me? How is God going to provide for me? Well, God is, it doesn't float down from heaven. It provides for you through the body that, of Christ that is here on this earth, namely God's people. And you're served and loved by his body. You come to understand Jesus better. And not just receiving, by the way, giving. When you begin to serve, you begin to learn how Christ serves you. As you sacrifice your energy and your time, you learn more of what Christ has done for you, who Christ is for you. And so I think this has just massive implications for our church, that we're united in love as a church community in order that we might grow in our understanding of who God is, who Christ is. Uh, one of the implications is, uh, is that we must uh, always be a loving community for one another. We, we are not, we're not, certainly we're not going to become an online church. As I, you know, I continually beat that gong. I think we have the live stream right now for a very specific purpose to accommodate us living in an age of global pandemic. But it is not to become an online church because to have an online church is to cut you off from an understanding of who Christ is, to cut yourself off from being united in love and therefore not under, be able to grow in your, your, your love of, of Christ. And so I think we need to be aware of that. But I think this tells us, once again, what the church is supposed to be. In other words, we, we're never, I don't care how much God continues to bless this church, we're never going to become like Six Flags for Jesus church. Okay, We're not going to become a church with a bunch of paid um, uh, uh, professionals who provide religious services for you, and you come and you pay for those religious services, and you take a little bit here and take a little bit there, and then you go on your way as some anonymous believer. That is not who we are to be. Because when we become that, we're actually cutting ourselves off from understanding who Jesus is. We must be a place where we're knit together in love, interacting with one another, serving one another, sharing with one another, what we like to call a faith family here where we all pitch in. This is why we value membership as a church so much. 
And some of you may be attending for quite a while. Let me encourage you to consider becoming a member of this church. Because when you become a member of this church, it's like going from eating in a restaurant where someone else cooks and someone else serves and someone else cleans. And then you pay and go on your way to, to like a home-cooked meal. And I don't know what it's like in your home. But uh, it's not, I just don't sit and get served and, and everyone else cleans. We all, we all pitch in. We all contribute. Why? Because it's our family. And so when we join a church, we declare this is my family. I'm here not just to receive, but I'm here to give. I'm here to serve. I'm here to use the gifts in which God has given me. And I understand sometimes we ask you to do things that maybe you don't want to do. You say, well, I don't want to serve as an usher. Or I don't want to serve on the security team. Or I don't want to serve in children's worship. Okay? I don't want to wash the dishes. I do so anyways. Why? Because it's my family. The church is to be a family. And this is not simply my idea. It is right here. United in love. Why? So that you and I could come to a complete understanding of all the riches, the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. That's the goal we should pursue. By the way, we have a church membership class Saturday, March 6th. I would encourage perhaps some of you to attend if you're looking to membership. That would be the first step in that process. I have two more points. They will be brief. Fourth, uh, thirdly, notice in a thriving church, faces danger. The danger we face in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I say this. Well, so, you, know, get, you have to understand that. I say what? Everything I just said. Everything we just considered is I say all that in order to protect you from those who seek to rob you of this treasure you have in Christ. Paul says all this being united together, encouraged, growing in our understanding of Christ, right, is to help us from, from the delusion that seeks to tempt us away from Jesus. In other words, the safest place to be from all the temptations, all the plausible arguments, is in a loving gospel preaching community. It's once you get outside of the church, it's very easy to get picked off. You get outside the herd, and you get picked off by the predators. And they are good at what they do. Notice Paul says they are plausible arguments, fine-sounding arguments. Perhaps your translation says they, they're, they're plausible because they speak our language. It's not talking about some guy who runs into the building and says, listen, I follow Satan, everybody come with me. Okay? I trust you would remain seated. Okay, these are people who come in, and they, they're, they're captivating they're smooth talkers, they're clean-shaven, right, very attractive, right, and they're very elegant, and, and uh, you know, and, and the whole package is there, and they're quite often on television, and of course we know that Paul says Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It was interesting, Augustine actually, the great Saint Augustine, perhaps the greatest mind since the Apostle Paul, fell into a false gospel, was deceived by a false gospel called Manichaeism. And was so for close to a decade. And in fact, he had all these questions about Manichaeism, a heresy in the 4th century. And people kept saying, we don't know the answer, but wait till Faustus shows up. 
Faustus will explain everything to you, and Faustus will answer all your questions. Faustus, the great teacher of the Manichees, and so Augustine waited and waited until Faustus came, and he sat eagerly at Faustus' feet and listened to him, and, and even had a private audience with Faustus and asked him all his questions, and Augustine would write of that event in his autobiography, I was greatly impressed by him, but only because of his smoothness of speech, for I discovered no wisdom or truth. The content did not seem better for being better presented, nor truer for being skillfully expressed, nor was it wise of soul because he was handsome of face. In other words, do not be confused by the package. Right? And whatever you hear, whether it be from a pulpit or from a book you read or the radio or the television, what are they saying about Christ? Line it up with your scripture. Ask people in your faith community Discuss these things in the church so that we might be strong and firm and committed to Christ as we consider, lastly, the delight we share. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. And here it is, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so it seems that these false teachers haven't done much damage in the church yet. Paul says, hey, beware of them. But then he looks at them and says, you know what I see? I see firmness in your church. I see good order in your church. And Paul says, these things bring me delight. I am delighted to see how strong you are standing for Jesus. I'm delighted to see your firmness of your faith. And so in some sense, Paul is going to deal with these false teachers all the way through Colossians chapter 2. But in some sense, the book of Colossians is, is, like a, is not an antibiotic for someone who has been caught in the her, this heretical virus. It's more like a vaccine in order to protect them from it. And he seems to be seeking to protect them. It's out there. I want to protect you from it, but you're standing firm. And, and they're standing firm, of course, you notice there in verse 5, together. Together. They're not teetering. They're tottering in the faith because they are together. When, when I go backpacking, quite often I have to cross uh, water. Uh, sometimes the rivers are, are uh, more, more strong, more dangerous than, than they um, some, uh, other times are. And it was about 2008, I was backpacking up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and we came across this, this raging river, and the trail just kind of walks right into the river, and you look across the river about 30 feet and the, see the trail on the other side. And, uh, and, and yet the water is just going crazy and rushing. In fact, we're looking for a way to cross, and we find a sign that says, bridge washed out, do not cross, three hikers have drowned this year. Right. Which, of course, to me is just a challenge. Right? <laughs> so I say, all right, well, it's on now. There are, there are ways, and my thought process, there are ways to cross raging water, that is more safer than others. And I, and I could explain all those things uh, to you, but it, it is somewhat difficult when the water is cold and the water is fast and the water was uh, navel high as this water was and you're carrying 40 pounds on your back and you can't see the bottom of the water, which of course has no soil, it's just boulders and rocks. And so it's very easy to lose your footing. And once you lose your footing, um, the, the, the backpack fills with water and, and down, down you go. Uh, and many people drown because they don't have their backpacks on uh, properly at that point. But any, anyways, the, the best way to cross water like this, and you might already know this, 
is no matter how many people are in your group, you link up together. And so uh, you, you all hold arms, you all hold each other's wrists, and, and one leg moves at a time. And so it's not, you got one leg moving, and depending on how many people you have, you have a number of points of contact. I was with my dad, and so what we did is we linked arms, faced upstream, and stepped side to side, just one leg moving at a time. So when one person begins to slip, the other person is able to pull them up, able to support one another. And I think that's what's happening in this church. Paul says, I look at you, and you're firm, and you're strong. It's a dangerous world, but I am rejoicing that you are standing firm in the midst of this raging whitewater, holding on to each other. What does he say there at the end of verse 5? The firmness of your faith in Christ. You are trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Christ. Trusting in the gospel. I love what George Whitfield said some time ago. Other men may preach a better, uh, may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. And it's the gospel that they're holding on to. There's no greater truth in which we can trust. There's no greater treasure in which we may discover. There's no greater joy than we may share that God sent his son into this world who took on human flesh and lived a perfect life in our place and then died upon a cross, was crucified, as the Bible tells us, as our substitute there would bear the wrath of God upon himself, the perfect son of God, for you and I. And then three days later, rise victoriously from the dead, and now as the crucified Lord and, and, and risen king calls for all to turn to him in faith. Your faith in Christ. To repent of your sin and come to him. For the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And even as we hold to this as a church, I invite all of you who have not yet received Christ by faith to understand that there is all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge found in him. Might you place your faith in him even now. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this great encouragement, this beautiful picture of what it is to be a church that thrives in the gospel. We pray your blessings upon Hamilton Baptist Church, and not just our church, but churches in our area. Father, we pray this morning for Percival Baptist Church and Blue Ridge Bible Church, uh, Grace Bible Church, and Catoctin Covenant Presbyterian Church. And, uh, we pray, Father, for our partners, Sterling Park Baptist Church and Lovettsville Baptist Church and Winchester Baptist Church. Father, we ask that you would work in these faith communities and in, in us that we might be firm in Christ in the midst of all this world wants to throw against us. And in being firm, be united together as we grow in our delight and appreciation of all the riches that we have found in Jesus. Do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.